Merry Christmas indeed, gentlemen. It is good to be able to say it. Merry Christmas. No matter what your stinking year has been like, Merry Christmas to you. Yeah. It's great to have a shaft of light in a dark world, and a Merry Christmas certainly is that. Guys, we're coming to the end of a section in Deuteronomy and beginning a new one. We're going to look at two chapters, and you know how that goes in Amen, so put your seatbelt on. We're going to race through. But I think we can get the essence of what Moses is communicating here in these two chapters in our uh, minutes together. Let's look at a chapter 11. And what we're actually doing here is coming to the end in chapter 11 of a section uh, known as Covenant General Covenant Stipulations. And you remember that began in chapter 4, verse 44, where Moses said, this is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. This is the law. And then for those chapters, all the way up through the end of chapter 11, we've had general covenant stipulations. That is, generally, what is it that the Lord wants from us? When we get to chapter 12, all the way through chapter 26, we're going to get what are known as detailed covenant stipulations. You thought it's been detailed so far. (laughs) Uh, What Moses does then is really enter into the code of life. And uh, this will provide for us a wonderful opportunity to understand uh, practical ways of living, practical ethics, we would call it, uh, in today's world. That's exactly what Moses was doing for the people of Israel. This is how you're to walk every day in detail. And so we'll pick that up with chapter 12, and we'll see where chapter 12 starts. It's very instructive where 12 starts. Uh, Generally speaking, 12 through 26 follows the general order of the Ten Commandments. So what you find Moses doing in 12 through 26 is taking the Ten Commandments and just working them out in life. And that's exactly what we should be doing all the time. Take the... Ten Commandments of God and work them out in life. And we'll see how to do that in chapters 12 through 26. So this is sort of a bridge session here before Christmas. We're going to look at the last chapter in the general covenant stipulations. We're going to look at the first chapter in the detailed uh, covenant stipulations. But let's begin with chapter 11. And let's see how Moses is going to sort of conclude this first section. Now, when we talk about general covenant stipulations, what are we talking about? Well, the very things that have been sort of the titles of our discussion. To fear the Lord. To love the Lord. To obey the Lord. To keep His commandments. There you go. Those are general covenant stipulations. In other words, what the Lord wants out of us is a general attitude in the way that we approach Him. A general frame of mind. What we would call a a new heart. Or as we saw last time, He says, circumcise your heart. Uh, Repent. Get a new heart. So the Lord wants a new heart from us. That's where it all begins. So that's the reason for the general stipulations. Then with that new heart, you go into life and you use it. And you face particular issues in your business, in your neighborhood, your community, your politics, your family, your church life. You face particular situations where you take an obedient and loving and fearing reverend heart and you work it out in that difficult environments like a merry christmas you take a merry christmas and you massage it into the whole year and that's the purpose for christmas let's just set some time aside and set some emotions aside and set some uh, some of our life focuses aside and let's focus on the incarnation for a few days and that's supposed to take you through the whole year you massage the incarnation into every circumstance in your life all year long that's what we're doing here 
uh, in, uh, in the transition from 11 to 12. But let's look at 11 and see what, see what Moses says here. He says, verse 1, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His rules, and His commandments always. And consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, His greatness, His mighty hand, and His outstretched arm, His signs and His deeds that He did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all His land, and what He did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how He made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what He did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what He did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. Let's stop right there. Now what we're going to see in this first section of chapter 11, uh, really the whole chapter is this. Your love for God is a choice. And the reason I say that is, if you'll look in verse 1, you see that he says, here as he summarizes, you shall therefore love the Lord your God. And you'll find love in verse 13. You'll find love in verse 22. He's obviously repeating something important here. That he's going back to the general covenant stipulation that he had already made and he says, okay, I'm going to summarize it. Now, here's the deal, gentlemen. You've got to love him. Now, those of you who are at Second Presbyterian, uh, you know we're, we just started a, a little short little series on worship last Sunday, and we talked about the most important thing in worship is your heart. And we said, what is your heart? Well, your heart is where you feel things deeply. Your heart is where you hold your deepest convictions. But what does a heart do? The primary job of a heart is to fix its love on the most important things and the most important people. A heart basically loves. That's its job. And the most important thing in your relationship with God is your heart because it's with your heart that you decide to love. And gentlemen, you do decide to love. And the reason is that everyone you're loving in this life is a sinner. And there are plenty of reasons not to love them. In fact, they would probably confess themselves that they're not all that lovable. But you're loving them. Why? You chose to love them. When it comes to God, the problem with God is that He doesn't always do what we want. He's perfect, but we're not. And we don't like the way He performs. Sometimes we would evaluate Him B+, plus, A-. Minus. And he ticks us off sometimes. And he disappoints us deeply. And he hurts our feelings. <laughs> he hurts our feelings. He does. He hurts our heart. Why? Because we're sinners and we're also limited in our ability to understand. So we sometimes will detach from God himself, not because of his sin, but because of ours. So sin is the problem. So no matter what direction you're loving, whether you're loving someone over you, someone who's a peer, or someone below you, uh, you're, you always have to cultivate the love that you're to give to other people. If you spend any time in the church, believe me, uh, it doesn't take long to find out sheep bite. They bite. 
And you have to choose to love people in your Sunday school class who will criticize your Sunday school lesson. Even sometimes they're just completely wrong and you're just sitting there fuming. I worked all Saturday night on this lesson and here all I get is this. You know? And you choose to love people. So the heart not only loves, it talks to itself and decides who to love and how to love them. And you're making these decisions all the time. Now, with your wife, those of you who are married, you know you have to choose to love. And you know when you choose to love her, here's what you do. You start talking to yourself about all of her great qualities. And you're trying to ignore the burnt toast this morning or the lack of sex last night or whatever it is that's got you going. And you, you get things into perspective and you begin to focus on her traits. And then you also begin to focus on your own male in Ephesians 5 where you're told to lay down your life for her like Christ laid down his life for the church. You go, oh yeah, that. Mm-hmm. And you choose to love her. And you, then what you find out is that as you choose to love her, you actually feel more for her. You're, you can actually cultivate your heart so that you love her more and more. Same with your children. Sometimes your children do unbelievable things against you. They show incredible disrespect or they ignore you or whatever it is that makes you get mad at them. But gentlemen, you choose to love your children. Why? Because God has given you a role in their lives. It's just that simple. You have an assigned role and you are a servant. Nothing more, nothing less. You're a servant of the Lord in all of the relationships where He's assigned you. Therefore, you choose to love your children. You choose to love people who aren't loving you because you're cultivating that in your heart. You know that's what you want to be and what God wants you to be. Here's what Moses is saying. You must choose to love the Lord. You say, yeah, but I don't, I don't like being sick and He's made me sick a lot. Or I don't like losing my wife and I've lost three of them. Or I don't like having my children flunk in school and He doesn't seem to be moving them along. I've got all kinds of complaints against the Lord. Moses says, you must choose to love the Lord. And he said, well, just give me some reasons. All right, I'll give you a few. Number one, you have historic reasons to obey Him. And you have historic reasons to love Him. All you have to do is look back. Look back. Well, where do I look back? Well, he says, and consider today. Well, what do you want to consider? Well, look at verses 3 and 4. He redeemed you. Look back. Look what he did to Egypt. Here you guys are. You're on the east side of the Jordan River at flood stage. You're going to go through the flooded plains there. You're going to go through the valley there and Jericho, and you're going to take the promised land. But before you get ready to do this, would you just look back and see what the Lord did? Do you think you defeated the Egyptians by your own wit? Did you do hand-to-hand combat with those guys? What are you going to tell the rest of the nations happened to you? You saw it. Now, remember, a generation has died. So what does it mean you saw it? Well, there's some kids that didn't die. It was all the adult generation that died. That's the reason for the 40 years in the wilderness, an ju- act of judgment on the adult generation that didn't believe. But the children, remember, walking through, probably terrified with wall of water on either side. And then terrified of all these raging Egyptians coming at them with spears and iron and chariots and horses. And those children remember when the waters flooded over the Egyptians. They couldn't believe it. And Moses is saying, you saw that. Now you just remember, that's the Lord. 
that you're complaining about. That's the Lord you don't want to love and obey. That's the Lord that you push to the side so that you can have your greed and your sex and your lust and your power and your prestige. That's the Lord. That's what he did. So what do we remember in the past? Well, isn't it really clear? Where did our redemption take place? It took place on an old rugged cross on a hill 2,000 years ago. And there's someone that we, humanity, abused and who had every right to destroy us was himself being destroyed on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the Lord. That's the one you devote yourself to. That's the reason you obey him. He died for you. And he overcame all of the natural hostility that would be derived from people treating you that way, and he died for us while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God. Christ died for us. So just remember the past. He redeemed you. Secondly, he supplied you. He said, verse 5, and remember, consider this, what he did to you in the wilderness. Well, what did he do to you in the wilderness? (laughs) You were hungry, and he gave you manna. And when you complained about the manna, he gave you quail. And when you were thirsty, he gave you water. And when you were being attacked, he destroyed your enemies. And when you were walking around in the hot sand, he never let your sandals wear out. And your feet were never swollen. That's what he did for you in the wilderness. He kept you in the wilderness all the way. Gentlemen, can you not look back amidst all of your struggles, all your trials and afflictions, all your disappointments? Can you not see? How the Lord has supplied you, provided for you all along the way. How his hand of mercy has been evident over and over again. And here's the problem. What we've chosen to remember are the moments of hunger. What we've chosen to remember are the moments of thirst. What we've chosen to remember are our moments of fear. What we didn't choose to remember was that he satisfied our thirst with water from the rock. What we didn't remember is that he gave us food when we were hungry. What we didn't remember is he gave us companionship when we were lonely. What we forgot to remember and to cultivate in our hearts was that he never let us be destroyed by our enemies. Consider a few things when you're talking to your heart about where you're going to put your love. Remember he supplied you and then remember he disciplined you. In verse 6 he says, Notice he he uses this phrase, what he did, what he did, what he did. This is all about what he did. So cultivating a heart is not about the kind of Christian you ought to be. You're never going to cultivate a heart based on what kind of Christian you ought to be. That's just focused on you. Here's how you're going to cultivate your heart. What he did, what he did, what he did. It's all about him. What did he do? He redeemed you, he supplied you, and then he disciplined you. You want a classic example? Okay. When you rose up, And some of your people rose up. In fact, in this case, it's the clergy that rose up and decided they'd had enough of Moses, had enough of the wilderness, basically had enough of God's church government. And they said, we've had it. And Moses said, okay, you all come on out and outside your tents. We'll see who's in charge here. Well, the Lord's in charge. What did he do? Open the ground. Korah, Dathan, and Byram and some others went down the hole and the ground covered them back up. Goodbye, that's it. That's called church discipline. And then there were 250 others who had their censers full of fire. They wanted The Levites wanted to be priests. Only a certain group of the Levites could be priests and go into the tabernacle, but some of the others wanted to have that extra privilege. They thought that, you know, God's order here I don't think I agree with. So they brought out their censers 
of fire. What did the fire do? Consumed all of them. And then what happened? Well, about 14,000 of them died of the plague before Moses could atone for them. That's, that's church discipline. God's intention to keep his people, keep a people pure and holy and serving him is severe. And sometimes his discipline is severe, but it's real. And it's the only way that that could have been straightened out. Think about it. 250 Levites, 250 Levites opposing Moses to his face. One man, 250. Who's going to solve that? The Lord solves it. And the Lord preserves his church by it. Think what would have happened if Moses had been destroyed and the 250 had had their way. Would we even have this book in front of us? We wouldn't hear much about the Israelites. They would have just been Bedouins wandering around and finally destroyed by their enemies. And the Egyptians may have come and get them and recaptured them and taken them back to slavery. God disciplines his church. Sometimes the, church, the discipline seems very severe. But God does it to preserve his people. You'll notice that Jesus gave us the same message in Matthew 18. He says, you all confront each other brother to brother. If that doesn't work, take another brother with you. If that doesn't work, tell it to the church. Presbyterians have said, well, we mean take it to the church. That's take it to the elders. They represent the church. That's fine. But somehow get it to the church. And then what does the church do? If the person doesn't repent, they are dismissed from the church. That's severe. But it's for the purpose of keeping you whole. It reminds me of uh, when uh, my David, who's now about 6'5", and he's a basketball coach, a college basketball coach, but when he was about three or four, uh, I don't know what it was about David, but he just... He'd look at you, tell him something, and he'd look at you, and then he'd just walk away and do whatever he wanted to do. Just unbelievable. I thought, this kid's missing some links in his brain or something. Or he can't hear. His mother kept saying, oh, he just can't hear well. You know? Yeah, right, can't hear well. Uh, so we were sitting down in the living room. He was about three or four years old. We put him to bed, and all of a sudden he appears at the top of the steps. We said, now, Dave, you need to get back in bed. And he just came down the stairs. He's going, does this kid not know that I could take him out? <laughs> you know, so I said, David, now we got to go to bed. So I picked him up and I put him back in the bed. And Alice and I were back downstairs in the living room talking, and there's David at the top of the stairs. He says, hi. Big smile on his face, no fear whatsoever. Hi. I said, David, back in bed. And he comes down the stairs. <laughs> so I pick him back up, and I spank his leg. He goes, I put him back in bed. I'm sitting down in the living room talking with Allison. Five minutes later, hi, top of the stairs. I mean, I'm just kind of, I am incredulous. I cannot believe what I'm looking at. So I, I realized, okay, I put him back in bed. I, I hit his leg again and made him kind of pout, put him back in bed, and then I closed the door. And I put a trunk up against the door. <laughs> Allison and I are downstairs in the living room. Five, five minutes later, we hear a boom. Boom. And we hear this boom as the trunk is being pushed back and at the top of the stairs. Hi. So I figure, you know, corporal punishment is not helping this kid. So I put him back in bed and I push the trunk up and I put weights on top of the trunk and I put chairs and a couch against the trunk. I mean, this kid is locked in. And I, we got back downstairs and I hear thump, thump. Thump, thump. Then I don't hear anything. 
So 10 minutes later, I go up, pull all the furniture out, open the door, and there's David asleep at the threshold. So I pick him up, put him in bed, put the cover on. I went through this for about three or four nights. And finally, what we did was we got a, uh, a latch and screwed it, you know, on the door so I could latch his door and lock the boy in. And, you know, we laughed just like you are. We, we tried not to laugh when he was at the top of the steps, and he'd go, hi. You know, because it, it was just, it was so outrageous, it was hilarious. And it was a laughter because who does this kid think he is? Does he think he's going to outlast me? <laughs> does he think I'm not smart enough to figure out some way to contain him in his little bedroom? It's like Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs at those who rebel against him. It's a joke. And it's that way with us. But fortunately for us, our father probably does giggle, even with his severe discipline. But he never sneers at us. He never makes fun of us. He deeply loves us. And it would make us laugh to think that we're going to rise up against him. No, look, he disciplines us. And that's part of our love for him. He's not going to let us get away. And my son now sleeps very soundly with his wife every night in their bed. Uh, so your love for God is a choice, and you choose him because you have historic reasons to obey him. Now, in uh, verses 8 through 12, we're going to see that you have future reasons to obey him and love him. Now, let's look at verses 8 through 12. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you're going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of, it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Let's stop there. Now, notice, and this is not in your outline so much, but notice a reason to obey him. He says, so that you'll be strong. Do you realize that your strength is not when you're at the top of the stairs saying, hi, I can get out of my bedroom. I can break the rules. You can't contain me. No, your strength comes when you go to bed and get your sleep and rise up in the morning and you're rested and ready to go. Now you're ready. You're powerful. You're a strong kid. And sometimes men think, that they're demonstrating their strength because, hey, look at me. I can do what I want to do. I have all the money I want. I have all the women I want. I have all the power and prestige I want. Look at me. I can break the rules. I don't have to abide by the rules like everybody else. I can break them whenever I want to. And that's part of my shtick is that I'm my own man. You're weak when you do that. What the text is saying, here's how you're going to be strong and stay in the land. Here's how you're going to possess it. Here's how you're going to keep it. Here's how your life is going to continue to be rich and full. Love the Lord with your heart and obey His commandments and you will be strong. And it's amazing. You can go from 
Example to example. I could take examples in this room. I wish we had time for testimonies, although you may be slow to give this kind of testimony. But I know of case after case after case in this room where men have chosen to walk with the Lord. It's made them incredibly strong. And you can see it in their lives as you get to know them. That's what the Lord is saying here. You're going to be strong if you abide with Him. So love Him. Give Him your heart. Make Him the object of your affections. Now, the future reasons that you have to obey Him are about your future home. And notice what Moses says about it. Your future home is well supplied. It's not like the land of Egypt where you have to irrigate your garden because you're out there and the land is flat and you have to move the water around through intricate technology and get the water to, to irrigate your plants. It's not like that at all. He says, no, no, no. This land has an open mouth and just drinks in the rain and just flows it everywhere. Natural irrigation. How's that? Well, you got hills. And the rain comes down off the hills, down into the valleys and the wadis. And so you, you have, these wadis are already made. The, the rain's coming right off the hills for you. The hills drink it in, and then you shoot it right down to you. You'll have all the water you need. It's amazing, this land. And what else about the land? Well, the eyes of the Lord are always upon it. The future home is well cared for. The Lord watches this land all the time. It's the holy land that's set apart for the people of God. Not like Egypt. You won't be like exiles where you'll be given the least valuable land, whether you're in Egypt or Babylon or Assyria, given the least valuable land. No, no, no. You'll be given the choice land, and I personally will take care of it. I personally will have my eyes on it. Well, gentlemen, what reason do you have to obey and love the Lord? Look at your future in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. You have the river of life. You have all the trees and fruitfulness you could ever want. You have the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ providing light for the city. You have uh, golden streets and gates of pearl. I mean, the place cannot be described. It's, it's, It's so beautiful and so pleasant that John strains at the use of human language to try to describe it. So this is the reason we love the Lord. It's what He's done for us in the past and our redemption and taking care of us and disciplining us so that we get to our future home, which is more beautiful than anything you've ever seen. You have future reasons to obey Him. Now, C. Let's look at verses 13 through 32 where we're giving adequate warnings to obey Him. Having given us these positive reasons, now the Lord says, look, it's not just your pleasure that's at stake. It's not just that I love you and I've taken care of you in the past. I've redeemed you. I've provided for you. And I'm taking you to a place that your mind cannot even imagine. But it's also about me and my glory. And what you have to know is, is that if you profess your faith and come in to belong to the people of God, and then you decide you're going to live like a hellion, I'll take you right back out of the church. Now, those of you who are hard-boiled Calvinists, now you know that you can't have someone who's a Christian one moment and not a Christian the next moment. But you can have people who belong to the church in one moment and then don't belong to the church later. In other words, somebody can profess their faith and not be a genuine Christian. That's mysterious to us. That's hidden to us. Here's what's evident to us is a person's behavior. And both are true. God is sovereignly in charge and He does irrevocably call His sons. So if you're called by God and you've been given a new heart, He's going to get you home. At the same time, if you profess your faith and then live like a hellion, He'll take you right out. Why? Because of His glory. 
which means likely you were never regenerated in the first place. You were only professing your faith. You weren't really born again. And that happens all the time. And the challenge here is that not speaking to the mysterious question of God's calling, His irrevocable calling, simply talking about your obedience, looking at it from that angle, the human angle of your performance and your behavior, and your evident love for Him, that His name is upon His church. And when His church disobeys Him for His own namesake, He will restore His own glory among His people. So you have adequate warnings to obey Him. Let's look at verse 13. He says, And if you will indeed obey My commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And He will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Let's stop right there. Wow. He's saying, don't be deceived by the false gods that are around you. I'm going to take you into this land. We're going to get to this next chapter. I'm going to take you into this land. You'll destroy these gods. Don't be deceived. These gods claim to be the source of all fertility and good weather and all fruitfulness among the trees of the field and the grass of the field. Those gods claim that. Don't believe it for a minute. Here's the one who's going to determine whether you get rain and whether your crops grow. It is myself. I'm completely in charge of that. And here's what's really ironic, that God would talk about the fruitfulness of the land, the fertility of their household, and the rain that comes, because that's exactly what Baal and Ashtaroth claim to provide. And notice what he says when his anger is kindled in verse 17. He will shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. I don't care what Baal says, and I don't care how many sacrifices you offer to him, I'm shutting up the heavens. And secondly, the land will yield no fruit. I don't care what Ashtaroth says. I don't care what kind of sacrifices you make to her. I'm not going to put fruit on your trees, and I'm the one in charge. So God here in His warning is giving us, ironically, a warning that He's going to withhold the very thing that the false gods promised. So He would say this, I think, in our own generation. If you obey Me, I'll make you strong and able to hang on to the possessions that God has given you as, as His children. If you decide to go elsewhere and find your, your joy in relationships, sexual relationships, you try to find your joy in your entertainment. You try to find your joy in all of your money and possessions. You try to find your joy in your power and your prestige. Here's what I do. I'll take away your sexual pleasures. I'll take away your entertainment. I'll take away all your money. And I'll take away all your power and prestige. And I'll take away all your physical health. I'll take away everything that you have looked to 
to attach your heart to, to love and serve and to make your God. I will destroy it all. And that's exactly what he has done over the 4,000 years of recorded history. When people have looked to other gods, they've been destroyed. It's exactly what he predicts. You can look at the rise and fall of all the nations. And you find that when they increasingly turn away from the Lord himself, there's going to be judgment. There always is. And that's what he says here to his people. And then he says, you will perish quickly off the good land that he's given you. Now, this is a deposit in Israel's mind because you know a few hundred years later they are taken into captivity. What do they need to do to find out what happened? Just read the book. You want to know how you got into captivity? You want to know how you got in trouble? Read the book. God is already in His grace anticipating our captivity. He's already anticipating all your sin, brother. He's already already anticipated all your disobedience. Why? Because you're his kid, for heaven's sakes. And he's putting it here. And you can look at it today. And you can see, you can look back in your own life and say, okay, that explains it. (laughs) I went off this way, got whacked. And he picked me up off the threshold and put me back in my bed and covered me up with my blanket. And that's exactly what he'll do to you if you're his child. He puts us into exile sometimes because he is preserving us. That's exactly how he preserved the remnant in Israel was that he purged them and cleansed them. That's what he does to your life. Sometimes bad things are happening. So guess what? God's in charge completely. We don't know exactly what he's doing, but he's likely purging something. He's likely preparing you to enjoy the great land of milk and honey where the hills drink in the water and you're provided for and loved all the time. He's got you in his hands. So just realize the Lord has redeemed you, he has supplied you, he's disciplining you, and he is now warning you. You have all the reasons in the world to love him. His love is so severe that he'll hurt you if he has to to get you home. No, he'll kill you if he has to to get you home. That's how much he loves you. So your love for God is a choice, and you have, by God's Spirit, the power this morning to choose to love Him for who He is and what He's done. Let's look at chapter 12 now in these next 21 minutes. Chapter 12 is the beginning of a new section. It's very interesting. I hope we have time to point out a few things uh, about it. But we're moving now to specific covenant stipulations. That is, if God has made covenant with us, in general, He wants us to fear Him, obey Him, and love Him. In particular... He wants us to do several things. And what does he begin with? Well, isn't it interesting? He begins with worship. You must choose true worship. That's what we're going to see in verses 1 through 32. You must choose true worship. If you choose to love him, the first thing he's concerned about is worship. Once again, those of you at Second Presbyterian, you know last Sunday we talked about number one thing. You see it over and over again in the Bible. When the people come back from captivity and Malachi is railing against them, as a prophet, for all the bad things they're doing. They've, they've divorced their, their old wrinkly Jewish wives and picked up young Palestinian chicks, and he's ticked off about that. They've, they've withheld their tithes, and Malachi is ticked off about that. Why? Because God's angry about it. They've decided that there's no justice in this world, and they're saying it openly and publicly, and Malachi's concerned about that. But what's the first thing he's concerned about? The blemish sacrifices they're bringing for worship. 
their insincere worship. And he says, here's the problem. It's not the blemished lambs. The problem is you have no reverence for me. That's God's complaint. His first complaint is the lack of reverence and devotion and love of his people in worship. Most important thing about your life is who you worship. Most important activity of your life is your worship of God. And we pick that up here. Now let's look at verses 1 through 4. These are the statutes and rules that you should be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Let's look at this. He's saying, first of all, in verses 1 through 4, you must destroy false worship. Destroy false worship. If you love the Lord, gentlemen, you get rid of all your lovers. How can you say to your wife, well, it's only once a month. You know, we just have this, I don't really love her. We just have a flame. And you think that's a good argument. Or, you know, pornography, I don't have any relationship with these people. It doesn't matter. Destroy every competitor to your wife. You don't destroy the person. You destroy their place in your life. And what Moses is saying is, here's how we'll know whether your worship is sincere, whether you really get the picture. There's going to be an unbelievable burning of a lot of things on every hilltop when you go into the, into the promised land. Because here's what the Canaanites did. Their worship was very um, polytheistic, many different gods. There were some major gods. It's much like going to India today where you have 300 million gods. I don't know that you had that many in Canaan. But you had a lot of gods. And there were always some dominant gods. And the gods tend to be regional, at least in people's minds. Now, some, some missiologists think that, that, and I think this is true, behind every false god is a demonic world. You find Paul suggesting this in 1 Corinthians 10, that the idols themselves, they're dumb idols. They're made out of stone and, or later on out of iron or later on out of gold and silver or wood. They're nothing. They're just inanimate nothing. Uh, Airsats, gods. They're, they're, they don't have any. They can't talk. They can't hear. Can't do anything. Stupid. But behind the physical nothing god uh, are demonic presences. And Paul suggests that in 1 Corinthians 10. And uh, our friends in India, the Christians serving there, would say that you can definitely feel that if you've been there and been in some of their uh, idol factories... Uh, in some of their temples, you will sense a demonic 
presence. And I think the reason is the demons are very active. Now, in India, they claim that the gods have regional authority so that in every sort of what we would call a county, uh, you'll have a county seat, if you will, and there'll be a temple there, and maybe it's the monkey god or maybe it's a snake god or some other god, and they believe that god rules over that area. Well, uh, Christians believe that there are certain demons manipulating the people and that God who do rule over that area. And you can, you can get certain uh, demonic rivalries going on in those places and much bloodshed. I mean, it's really, you almost have to experience it to understand it. But what, what is happening in Canaan is the same sort of thing. This is very ancient. People make up gods. They know there's something beyond themselves in life. And one way to try to get control of it is make yourself a god. It's, it's a strange perversion of reality. We are creatures. We are made by another. There is a God. We are not in control, and we have a desire to get control. And when we're broken and sinful, we will find someone other than the real God that we can control and manipulate. That's the whole idea behind pagan polytheistic theology and worship. So on every high hill, the hills were the places of worship because why? You're getting closer to the deity as you climb the hill. So on the top of the hill, there would be an altar to these gods. And the god would rule over what could be seen from the top of that hill. So you look around, and of course there's some overlap and competition, but basically the gods are ruling. And the main one was Baal and Ashtaroth. Baal being the male god and Ashtaroth uh, his, his uh, princess, if you will. And when the two of them are getting it on, uh, we have fertility in the land. And the way that you sacramentally engage in that is you engage with the temple prostitutes. And so it's very sexual. And that's the way that you worship. And so uh, what Moses is saying, look, I don't want you just to go in and raise another flag and everybody salutes to Yahweh and those, those idols stay up on top of the hill. No. Here's what true worship is. You go cleanse the whole place. And I want you to go down and tear down their altars. And then those wooden Asherah poles that are representative of God herself, burn them. And those trees where they've been claiming the tree is the tree God, cut them down. I want their names completely removed so that nobody has any misunderstanding that there's the power of the name of a God in this valley or on that hilltop. I want their names gone from there. Why? I want my name there. You say, well, who's, who's God think he is? Well, here's what he thinks he is. He thinks he's the sovereign, good, glorious God of the universe who owns every square inch of the planet and all the galaxies. That's who he thinks he is. You know what? I think he's right. And he doesn't brook competition. Why? Because it's unreal. What it does is it calls up the underworld who are evil and out to destroy people. And when you displace God, the, the, demon, the demons get involved in it and destroy people. They destroy the name of God and then they destroy people. That's their strategy. He came to steal and kill and destroy, says Jesus. I came to give life and give it to the full. And here's how you get life. Get rid of those competitors. So what does this mean? It means if you want to get off pornography, you don't just say, you know, I know it's a bad thing, I need to repent. No, you get covenant eyes for your computer or some other similar program, and you have your site sent over to your friend 
Does it need to be once a day or once a week? However often it needs to be. You destroy the possibility of going back to a false god. Destroy it. You say, well, you know, I, I really know alcohol is a bad thing, but I'm chemically dependent. I just can't do anything about it. Oh, yes, you can. You can destroy it. Here's how you destroy it. Get the care you need. You can do something about it. With your old bad DNA, you can do something about it. You can put yourself under discipline. You can get inpatient care. You can go to AA meetings every day. You can have people looking over your shoulder all the time. Why? Because you intend to destroy a God that has its name on you. And so every day you go to the alcohol AA meeting, you say, my name is Sandy and I'm an alcoholic. Fine. But here's what you really want to say. My name is Sandy and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. There's a new name on you, brother. And it destroys every other name, including alcohol and drugs and sex and power and greed and all the rest. And so how do you destroy greed? You put in, you put in disciplines in your life to destroy it. You get rid of that God. How do you do it? You confess it to somebody. The last thing American men typically do to defeat this God is to say anything about it. Nobody likes to talk about their greed. Tim Keller says in his book on false gods that the, he's never in 30 years of ministry had any man ever come to him and say, yeah, I'm struggling with the problem of greed. He says, I've had men come to me tell me they struggle with all kinds of things. Never once in 30 years anybody confessed the sin of greed. Why? Greed, that God, gets a hold of your neck and prevents you by its strategies from even admitting that you're struggling with it. Well, how are you going to kill it? Tell us you got it. Find a confessing brother, someone you can share. I spend everything I get and even more. I always carry debt because I'm always consuming more than my income. Or I find it hard to tithe because I just don't like to let the money go. It's got a hold of my neck. You share that with somebody. You let them look at your financials. What made you think? that your financials are more private than your underwear. I don't know where you got that idea, that you can't share your financials with anybody, that nobody's supposed to know your business. You know what? Somebody needs to know your business. And if you're an alcoholic, somebody needs to have you in the AA meeting telling us whether you had a drink last night or not. You need somebody you're talking to. You need to get connected up and destroy that God. And it's going to take more than you alone. That's the reason we have the church. I'm not saying you stand up on a Sunday morning and tell us your financials. But I am saying there's somebody you need to be working with who has a concern to destroy the God of, of greed in your life. And somebody's working with you to do that. And somebody looks at how much you're giving to the poor. Somebody looks at how much you're giving to the Lord in His church. Someone looks at your whole profile and gives you some honest, arm's-length Christian opinion on it. When's the last time you ever did that? Has anyone ever done that? Americans tend to hide their behavior with the worst bail in the land. And God says, I'll have none of that. I want you to go to every hilltop and destroy every one of those gods and especially Baal and Ashtaroth because they're the ones who have you around the neck. This is the kind of strategy that worship entails. Here's what he's saying. The most important thing in your life is worship, and you cannot worship me if you worship another. Jesus put it this way. You can't have two masters in your life. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. It's always binary. It's either or. 
And here's what contemporary American pluralistic philosophy teaches you. Everybody here has their right to their own religion. Everybody has their right to call God whatever they want to call Him. But what you don't have a right to do is to say you're the only one. And as soon as you do that, you're not American. I've seen this on Larry King Live. Interesting. We had Deepak Chopra and we had uh, someone from a Buddhist background and we had a liberal Protestant and we had one evangelical. I think it was John MacArthur maybe. And everybody was getting along fine. And Deepak Chopra said, Chopra said, you know, I, I respect everybody's religion on this panel except for that man over there, John MacArthur, because he thinks his is the only one. That's the one sin, religious sin, that disqualifies you as a legitimate American religious person. Here's what God is saying. That's exactly what the Canaanites will say. Everybody can have their own God. Everybody's got their own hill. Just don't go wipe out the next hill. Don't claim you're the only hill. You just got your hill. He says, look, I want every hill. I want every valley. I want every act of worship. Every one of them. So gentlemen, does that mean that we go destroy other people's religious buildings? <laughs> no. Until he comes back. And when he comes back, they'll be destroyed. That's not our tactic now. Our tactic is with deeds of love and mercy. We announce the kingdom of God. But we fight our battles against spiritual realities. And we take every thought captive. If someone wants to know my opinion about who the only God is, he will get my opinion. And I'm not going to play the American religious game of equal, uh, equal uh, reality equal validity to every religion. There's not equal validity to every religion. There's equal access to civil rights for every religion. And the Christians are the ones who created that environment because we believe in it. It comes from the text. It's in the book that there would be equal rights for people. They don't have to believe what I believe in order to be able to go to public schools and to have their property protected and, and to have benefits from our tax dollars and all the rest. And I would defend those rights. But when someone asks, what do you believe? I don't believe that all religions are equal in their validity. I don't believe there's but one that is the true religion. I don't believe that worship ought to be given to anyone else but the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Christ claimed. That's what Moses claimed. That's what we're to be claiming in this world. It's, yes, a voice in the wilderness. Like John the Baptist. But who says the voice in the wilderness is not right? Who says the voice in the wilderness is not true? Who says the voice of the person being crucified by all the political and military powers of the world is not the one who's in the right? So our worship comes from these instructions which come from the Lord Himself who is making a total claim to all of your worship with no competitors. That's the point. So he says, destroy the places, destroy the idols, destroy the names, and destroy their worship. No syncretism allowed. So get rid of it. Now why do you get rid of it? Because you're in love. It's like Augustine 
who before he was converted, he was a man about town. He was having affairs with all kinds of young women in Milan, Italy. He was born in North Africa. He wanted to leave home because his Christian mother was driving him crazy. So he crosses the Mediterranean. He goes to Italy, goes to Milan, have a little fun. And what happens in Milan? He's reading a book outside of a cathedral because he hears the boys' choir sing Tole Lege, take up and read. And so he takes up and reads. And what's the book? It's the Bible. And he turns to, to Romans 13. And he is stripped naked. And he realizes the Lord is the Lord. He is God. He goes and talks to the priest Ambrose. And Ambrose leads him to faith in Christ. Monica, his mother, could never be happier. But, but Augustine is still walking the streets of Milan. And one of the young ladies comes up to him one day and says, Augustine, Augustine, is it you? And he says to her, it is not I. And he walks on. He's disconnected himself. He's destroying his God. He didn't destroy her. He destroyed their adulterous relationship. He destroyed it. Turns his back on it. Keeps walking. You're a new man. And that's exactly what's being said here. Now, secondly, verses 5 through 32, we won't read it in detail. We obviously don't have time. But we establish true worship. And just notice, uh, when you get a chance to read this, several things. First of all, he establishes the place he chooses. Get rid of the hills and come to the tabernacle. Now, obviously, that was in Shiloh and then other places, ultimately Jerusalem with the temple. The place he chooses. The hill he chooses. And then the name he hallows. Get rid of their names. Put my name on this land. And then the long section of verses 6 through 27, the sacrifices he desires. Now look at, in chapter 12, look at verse uh, 11. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest thou offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. So we eat and rejoice in His presence. All right? You see all these things? The sacrifices He desires. He lists six or seven types of sacrifices. That's the reason that, gentlemen, your tithe needs to go to the Lord in the place that he chooses. What's the place he chooses? His church. So if you give it to the Red Cross, great. Give, give money to the Red Cross. Red, uh, Red Cross needs your money. Give it to the Boy Scouts, great. Give it to the Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts need money. No one says that you stop giving with the tithe. No one says that Christians live on 90% of their income. I don't think you should live on 90% of your income. Try 80%, something like that. And then save. Now you're down to 70 or 65%. Pay your taxes. Now you're down to 20%. Get your life in control so that you give the tithe the place he chooses, his people, his church. And then give more generously beyond that to the poor and those in need and institutions that are worthwhile and your alma mater and all the rest. But bring the tithe into the place the Lord chooses where his name is. And where's his name? It's in the Lord Jesus Christ and among his people. And he's saying that to them. Don't spread your devotion all around. You know, okay, I'll give... I'll give most of my tithe to Yahweh, but you know what? Just in case this Baal thing has some legitimacy to it, like kind of a rabbit's foot, I'm going to give 1% or 2% to the rabbit's foot, just in case, you know. There's something about knocking on wood. You know, I don't know. Destroy all that crap. 
Get rid of all your good luck charms. Get rid of all your superstitions. They're competition for the worship of God. Do you believe that God holds all blessing in His hand or does He not? If He does, get rid of everything else. And He says, and then rejoice. Eat and rejoice. And sometimes people have a hard time understanding why Christians would spend money on worship services, why they'd spend money on dinners together. He says, have a great time. Rejoice in His presence. The offerings were largely eaten by the people who were rejoicing together in a great religious festival. Have your festivals and include the Levites, 12b. And we're going to finish here these uh, real quickly. He says, C, do not profane worship. That is, don't have your sacrificial meals anywhere else, only at the place he chooses. And don't drink the blood. And we'll, we'll get into that in Leviticus 17, but we don't have time to. Now here he, he gives warnings, finally. Be careful. Be careful to obey. Why? Well, don't even think about it. Take care that you do not inquire about their gods. So let's see, how does the horoscope work? If you, if you read it this way and you put, don't even ask. Don't even think about it. That's what he's saying to them. Don't even inquire about their gods and about their worship. I don't want you copying any of their worship. Why? False worship ensnares. False worship destroys. He says, take care that you not be ensnared. There's something ensnaring about the rabbit's foot. There's something ensnaring about the old wives' tale. There's something ensnaring about the horoscope. There's something ensnaring about astrology. There's something ensnaring about money and sex and power. And then lastly, he says in verse 32, everything that I command you, you should be careful to do. You should not add to it or take from it. That is, stick to the Word. And gentlemen, have a Merry Christmas. Stick to the Word. Remember who the Lord is. Focus on Him and love Him with all your heart and especially love Him because He sent His Son to take on human flesh, to deliver us from our sins, to be with us always, and to take human flesh to His right hand. He came here and captured up human flesh, glorified it, and took it to His right hand so that now in the Trinity Himself, Human humanity is represented perfectly. And one day we'll join him at his right hand. Now there is something to celebrate. And that's why we love him. To the T. Let's pray. Lord, bless us now as we go. Enable us to be the men who know our God and who are devoted to you alone so that we worship you not only in the Lord's day, but every moment of every day in everything that we do because of who you are and what you've done for us. And we make our prayer in the name of the incarnate Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.